Hello, hello, and welcome to another hometown daily news show. I am Marwat, and today is Saturday, February 25th, 2023. It's 9 p.m., and that means we've got 11 articles to go rolling through. Tonight's episode is titled Drinks Only an AI Powered Hedge Fund Could Love. The articles we're going to cover briefly are a new. I guess wine, soda, hard seltzer combo kind of a drink. Car companies want to charge you for features like heated seats and acceleration. Uh, Aaron Brockovich is uh, leading the charge in an East Palestine uh, lead. The, well, the the train accident. Um, Facebook ads that are opposing um, a ban on vaping in Australia. It didn't disclose that it's powered by a tobacco company. U.S. Copyright Office rejects AI-generated book art. There's a legal doctrine called the Henderson Test that could weaken Section 230. The DEA has announced uh, or proposed rules for telemedicine. There's going to be, well, there's a fund manager that says that AI is going to take over everything and uh, the 10 worst paying jobs, uh, college majors, actually five years after graduation and a pop-up message tells staff to go home 10 minutes before locking all of the computers in the business. And finally, uh, one brave editor writer wrote an article about a crypto backed energy drink and that it tastes, well, they say like it's secreted from the blockchain. I summarize it as drinks only an AI-powered hedge fund could love. Let's get into today's articles. Hello, hello. I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. And I'm going to jump right on into saying... Dear AI, are you there? Can you say hi to everybody? Good evening, hometown citizens. Yeah, I changed up the that little call to the AI, and so the AI kind of looked at me like, what the heck are you doing? Um, I'm not going to really do much of a preamble because I want to get into these articles. If you are in chat, if you hear this later on, please feel free Come over to uh, twitch.tv slash hometown and uh, strike up a conversa conversation. The chat is always going and we can stop what we're doing and talk about something that uh, an article or um, maybe something that's divergent from the articles, but we can always bring it back to business technology and society because you can't get away from any of that. Um, I've made some modifications to hometown, but they're really just I, I guess aesthetic, not really functional. Um, but I have added the gamification module and I've uh, also added this little link down here in the bottom corner that'll be on all of the pages when we are live. Um, it will be, it'll say that we are live. So if I just refresh it, um, it'll say that we are live. And if you click it, you can go straight to us while we are chatting. So we'll see if that actually occurs. Um, let's get into the articles. Sound good? Right. <laughs> Got it. So the very first article is in the Stock Marketeers channel. Uh, 
okay, uh, I'm not sure why it ended up in uh, stock marketeers other than maybe a lot of business people are drinking right now because of the way that the stock market is, inflation, producer price index, and a bunch of other indicators that say, eh, maybe some hot water has come in still. But anyway, uh, Woodbridge, a wallet-friendly label, has introduced a wine-based carbonated drink. And this is uh, this article is titled Weekend Sip. Move over White Claw, a new wine soda aims to appeal to the hard seltzer crowd. I don't know. Uh, but a lot of people love White Claws. These are, uh, this article is written by Charles Passy uh, and it's in marketwatch.com. And there's the, the flavors, lemon lime, wine soda, orange wine soda, and grapefruit wine soda. I don't know, do, do those? Does grapefruit wine soda sound like something that you'd really? No, <laughs> but the other two might be good. Right? I mean, it's a little citrusy and it's white wine, so it might augment it <clears throat> in some way. Um, if you're a white wine aficionado, you may not appreciate the contaminant that would be lemon, lime, orange, or grapefruit. Um, but then again, I don't suppose wine snobs are going to be sipping wine from a can. Yeah, I think I that's would. a different uh, target audience. <laughs> Depending on where they're shipping them right away, it's an odd time to as well, considering California is freezing. All of the mid, well, the West Coast is under basically freeze watch. Uh, oh, I can't imagine what the fruit supply is going to be like out of California for the next, I don't know how long prices are going to shoot through the roof. That's right. No more uh, strawberries or whatever Oranges, else for avocados. the next several months. Exactly. Man. So apparently Woodbridge wine soda is going to go for somewhere between 11 and 13 bucks uh, for a six pack. And I guess a six pack is always going to be grapefruit, lemon, lime, and orange. Hopefully they'll come out with some others. I'm not sure what. Um, it's apparently made with wine. Um, Shriva Stava says that the beverage can, combines Woodbridge white Zinfandel and natural flavors with the perfect level of carbonation to achieve the classic soft drink sensation. Yeah, my soft drinks don't typically get me intoxicated but yeah you must be doing it wrong <laughs> apparently so it says ironically woodbridge uh, product arrives at a time when many say hard seltzer craze has jumped the shark there was a saturday a saturday night live skit that summarizes the situation perfectly according to the author of this uh, article think jiffy lube branded hard seltzer but the broader category of alcoholic ready to drink beverages or RTDs, uh, which includes bottled cocktails and presumably wine sodas remains strong and is projected to grow by 11.6 billion over the next half decade. So why don't they just say five years? Right. And now we see why it's in stock marketeers because there's a reference to the stock ticker symbol. Oh, right. Yeah. And that's typical for market watch stuff. So, um, it's an interesting uh, article uh, simply because of the timing. And, and that's really why I wanted to talk about it. 
Much of the United States is pretty much getting crushed by a freeze or pending freeze. I suppose you could buy it now um, when they want it off the shelves. Maybe it'll be on sell, sale and they'll just um, allow me to get it cheaper and then I can stick it in a pantry somewhere and wait until it's time for summer to roll around. And you can break out that flat top and stop, start cooking some burgers and vegetables, of course, vegetables, because, you know, those vegetarians out there need uh, some some grub to eat with their uh, fine, high quality wine soda. May I pop the top for you, so to speak? You know, the, may I uncork the bottle or? Now it's I think it would be great for summer again. I'm not so sure in the winter, but <laughs> seems pretty refreshing. Yeah. Um, hometown will give it a try. Let's see. You want, Let's move on to the next article. I'm not going to talk about that for 20 minutes, although. Hey, look, we're past the threshold where I can start getting more colorful. Uh, this next article is in the Daily News show. Car companies want to make billions by charging monthly fees for features like tires. No, that's not what they say. Um, like heated seats and uh, electric cars make it easier than ever. That's because everything is pretty much remote. Anyone want to give me a flipper one? Never mind. The AI is just looking at me like I just sprouted another head. So pricey add-ons could start ruffling EV buyers' feathers, but automakers might struggle to survive without them. And what them is, is features. <laughs> Can you believe this? This isn't the first time, by the way, that this has been talked about here in hometown. This is a businessinsider.com article by Alexa St. John. And um, car companies want to make billions by charging monthly fees for features. Yeah, when are they going to start calling necessities features like the steering wheel or the brakes or I don't know. Do you want your brakes to be 100% effective? You'll have to charge 20 or you'll have to pay us 20% more per month. I'm kind of shocked by this being entertained. But when they sit there and they say, well, they won't, my automakers might struggle to survive without them go look at the profits from these companies and tell me that they're going to struggle. That's not, that's just not true, you know, and, and a $60,000 car is ridiculous. This is when you drive by a dealership and you see, you know, $40,000 off of a vehicle and the sticker price is still 60 grand. Things are a little bit out of whack. But uh, it says, but automakers say they are all in on electric, so they'll have to make it up somewhere. That could mean selling their customers on all sorts of after-sale things like subscriptions and additional features or upgrades. Yeah, it used to be, do you want a full-size spare tire and floor mats? And there's your bump. Now it's, do you want heated seats? Well, outside it's negative two degrees. Uh, so, and you can choose to make that negative to Celsius or Fahrenheit. That's your call, but either way it's negative. And if you're in a car and it's freezing cold, you pretty much want in the 21st century heated seats. Um, don't let anybody 
fool you that, oh, you know, back in my day, uh, we had to rub sticks together in the back seat of the car just to stay warm. That's, that's not really a good argument. Times change, technology evolves, business evolves, <laughs> society evolves. You don't have to rough it because now it should be so damn cheap that it, you know what the subscription is? Thanks. It's part of the features. That, that should be the, the cost of the subscription. Pat you on the back. Good job, manufacturers. I wish cars would actually like just have a flat price and it included features. I mean, because even without the subscriptions, it's kind of ridiculous because the starting price is something, but by the time you add anything on, it's, it's way above it. Yeah, even the base price is never the price out the door, it seems. Says, while consumers might need to warm up to the idea, the industry might not have much of a choice, according to Deloitte's recent Future of Automotive Mobility to 2035 report. The consultancy estimates 50 to 60% of future profits might be at stake if companies keep going on with business as usual. But here's the thing. Profits. <laughs> you know what? Become more effective in your manufacturing processes and expand the margin to what consumers can buy. If you don't do it, then you will die on the vine um, in terms of being a business. So I, I'm not too worried about this. I think that um, what's going to end up happening is people are going to stop buying vehicles and they're going to hang on to what they've got. And this might be a double-edged sword leading to the closure of manufacturers and those that remain basically say, well, you're going to have to pay our price if you want a new car in the next decade. Um, but I think it's ridiculous that car companies are demanding ever more, ever greater profits because stockholders want their price to keep going up. And the only way that's possible is by crushing everybody, every consumer into the ground you we're taking all of your money every little bit of it not just what we need to manufacture a product and have some juice left over for future endeavors no that's not what's happening it's they're trying to appeal to the stockholders and sometimes you just have to and we say this all the time you have to learn how to say no it's just not possible and if they want to go somewhere else fine but when a company starts messing around with i'll just say the way i normally say it, dicking around with their own stock buying it back and selling and releasing it again and making money off of the valuation of their stock and getting loans against the valuation of their stock they're over leveraged and they're playing this profits game trying to generate revenue off of something that is endemic to their own performance and the only way they can increased performance i.e they're going to either have to do better or they're going to raise prices you know if they do better that means increasing their margin by finding suppliers that can provide the same goods and services at a lower cost so that their sale price is let's say forty-five thousand dollars. that's still i think ridiculously high for a car but but you know price is subjective but if the price is $45,000 and it's been $45,000 for the last five years, 
the cost of the goods that put that car onto the road, the cost of goods sold, right? You should be much more efficient and effective expanding your margin by lowering your overall costs because you know exactly what goes into that car and manufacturing gets better. It doesn't get worse with time, you know? Uh, so I think that prices need to plummet. Um, and the only way that's going to happen is if buyers basically say, bite my shiny metal ass, you're not going to get any money from me. Um, and regardless of what they say about EVs, EVs, people are going to be buying into this EV model more and more and batteries. I, I, I'm always astonished when people sit there and say, well, you know, I got my EV for $35,000 and Da, da, da. And you know, I save so much money on my gas and, and then I say, well, you know that in 10 years, depending on the way that you drive your vehicle and the atmosphere around your vehicle, like too much heat or too much cold, your battery is going to die faster. What are you going to do then when it's another seven to $15,000 to replace? Literally you have to buy a new engine. Well, and then yeah. don't even factor in the resale or lack thereof yeah yeah when when word gets out that the battery is susceptible to permanent damage where it has to be remanufactured reconditioned and it it gets worse with time and dramatically faster i think um depending on how you abuse it uh, than a regular engine obviously there's always people that can just like not put oil in their car, but those are the same people that with an EV, they're going to be dead on the side of the road, calling, you know, AAA to come and pick their car up. So I, I just don't, it says until now, only EV startups and Tesla have eliminated the dealer as middlemen and strictly used direct to customer or consumer um, sales models. But even traditional automakers are considering the idea driven by a supply constrained profitability gains and a long-term trend toward tightening margins on vehicle sales, according to Deloitte's report, largely due to the EV transition. Well, you know where all of the internal combustion vehicles are going to be sold? No, no, no idea. N none, not, not at all. You, you just, you're not going to say anything. Not a single piece. I've peep. got nothing. I've got, got nothing. There we Okay, you got nothing. Um, Wyoming. <laughs> Sorry. It was easy, but you'd have to have been here to actually know what that really means. Wyoming is pushing for policy to hobble the electric vehicle industry um, to protect uh, internal combustion vehicles, gasoline, and oil companies in Wyoming, and supposedly to protect its... Uh, electrical grid, which you know what you need to do when you know you have a weak elect electrical grid, you know what you do? You don't fix it. You, you, you leave it back in 1884 um, and you don't evolve it. You don't push it forward. You don't make it better, stronger, more robust. Well, that does prove your point that say you need to hold on to old technologies. No. I mean, if you're if you're trying to make that point and then you're like, hey, the EV infrastructure isn't even working. Oh, right. Yeah, there we go. I'm sorry. I didn't quite. 
Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're going to hobble the EV market, then you have everything old still there so that you can say, see, I, I, I I've run across people that say I like pen and paper because when the power goes out, I still have pen and paper. OK, <laughs> so I guess we're going to get into our horse drawn buggy and ride around town. See you in a few months when you get from North Carolina to California. Watch out for Oregon. I hear it really is disastrous. Okay, so uh, again, I always do this. Um, you can go into uh, Showbot uh, or hometown.showbot.tv and vote for articles. You can actually submit articles there too. I will know the difference between the ones that I submit and the ones you submit. It actually puts your name on it so that I can uh, add them to the pool over at hometown.com. But if you click that link down there, you go to the URL down there because it isn't a clickable thing. hometown.showbot.tv. You can vote on articles that we're talking about today. Um, I, I might end up putting that as uh, a call to action at the top of hometown each each episode each day um, just to see if uh, people will click on that link too we'll see uh, that said you can click on the links that are in the vod in the show notes in the show notes of the podcast because it is a podcast as well it's over on youtube we are over on youtube just search for hometown and you'll pull up the hometown daily news show um, it is the leading show uh, from hometown.com. The intent is to bring many more shows, uh, but we're kind of going slow about it and hoping that uh, I can, I can't be everywhere. I, I would love to have more hosts and co-hosts. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, get in touch with the mayor, just send an email to mayor at hometown.com. That said, let's get into the next article. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, who at one point I thought was nothing more than a character uh, in a movie until I, I got to watch the actual movie. Um, quite fascinating. So activist Aaron Brockovich leads East Palestine residents in town hall meeting, which just seems to go right back to her humble beginnings. About 2,500 people and 100 reporters attended the town hall meeting with the crowd spilling into the school gymnasium. This is just exactly like it's the movie. like a movie scene. I mean, I know it was based on real life, but I'm just thinking of the movie scenes from the movie Aaron Brockovich. Uh, Brockovich, who became an activist in 1993 battling Pacific Gas and Electric Company over groundwater contamination in Hinkley, California, told the audience to fight back and trust their instincts, i.e. don't drink the water. Um, this is a commondreams.org article, and it's written apparently by Common Dreams staff, so no individual is named in the byline. But yeah, the the, the stadium was filled, or auditorium, I should say, was um, filled, and also two rooms that were acting like overflow, and then probably outside as well as people crowded into this thing to to speak to somebody where they know exactly where it's coming from unfortunately this is not a quick fix activist aaron brockovich said to a packed crowd in an east palestine ohio high school auditorium friday night this is going to be a long game unfortunately i mean in the 21st century this statement should not be 
about that. It should be, what is the environmental impact of this accident? We know who was to blame. It was a mechanical failure, but what was really responsible for this? Was it maintenance? If it was maintenance, then guess where the liability falls? And it shouldn't take 10 years, 20 years. Um, but that may be the same result um, as Pacific Gas and Electric Company, you know, people being threatened and all kinds of just kind of nightmare fuel for society. It shouldn't happen like this. Quote, I've never seen in 30 years a situation like this, she said, warning residents that uh, what her team was going to present them may scare them. I feel your angst and I feel your frustration and I want to share something with you. You're not alone. Um, this is almost entirely uh, her history. So, um, And then to hear today that they've been shipping soil from East Palestine out to other states, essentially removing the evidence in an effort to mitigate supposedly uh, the impact on the local soil, but now it's spread across the country? Well, right. I mean, not only are they probably obstructing any look into what happened because they are removing the soil and um, water, <laughs> they're then they're transferring that contamination to at least two other states. And those states weren't even notified. This has already happened. Yeah. And now, uh, from what I understand, the EPA has frozen that effort. Uh, and uh, told them that they have to stop. I mean, for goodness sake, nobody knows really the full extent of this exposure. And now it's spread to at least two other states. Um, almost half of U.S. voters surveyed by progressive think tank uh, Data for Progress blame rail company North, North, I can never say this name, Norfolk Southern for the February 3rd train derailment derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, which forced 1500 residents to evacuate contaminated soil and water has been blamed for causing a number of symptoms, even as officials claim air and water monitoring hasn't shown dangerous levels of pollution, dangerous levels of pollution. So 49% of the 1243 people surveyed by data for progress from February 17th to the 22nd said that they believe um, Norfolk Southern was responsible for the crash, including 50% of them being Democrats, 52% of uh, independents, and 47% Republicans. So this is within the margin um, in terms of political alignment as to who should be blamed for this. I, I suspect those who don't blame Norfolk Southern directly um, have some sort of, um, uh, maybe something falling in the definition of fidelity. They think that, yes, it was a Norfolk Southern train, but it was a mechanical failure. And because that mechanical failure hasn't been sussed out to be caused by lack of human maintenance, they can't lay blame on anything. Um, but, or maybe they're waiting for more facts. Like we don't know what condition the tracks were in. 
we don't know whether Norfolk Southern followed all the regulations. I mean, maybe there weren't adequate regulations. In place. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not at fault, but there's a lot more to the story. And it all comes on the heels of additional train uh, derailments uh, since then. And all of this comes after uh, labor negotiations broke down and the union was basically told go back to work, um, which I think is ridiculous. And one of the arguments that I heard from another streamer was, well, what do you want the whole nation to just stop because uh, unions um, wanted to strike? And uh, hell yeah. Yes, fine. You mean actually treat humans like something other than chattel? Yeah. Yeah, a-hole. I think that a union is formed to offset the power differential. And could everybody have gone and gotten another job? Yeah, sure. But it's not about going and getting another job. It's about stopping the abuse, stopping the leveraging of human capital while profits are still increasing for the, the few, while the many have to suffer long hours and, and personal harm because there aren't enough checks and balances in place. So while some people are sitting there arguing for a four day work week, you know, these people were being told you have to bust your hump more. Um, and because people need food on the table, the power differential causes them to go, okay, I'll capitulate, but that's not what society should be about. So we'll continue to watch this. I don't know how much news will come out of this as time goes on because things tend to uh, settle down after catastrophe. Um, but I'm sure that there will be moments where people draw attention to what is happening in East Palestine um, because it's going to definitely you know, knock on to other things. It's not going to stay within East Palestine. Um, policy and procedure is definitely going to change. And I can imagine the federal government is going to be stepping up more. Um, even as we speak, blame is trying to be thrown at transportation secretary because uh, they were not apparently present in East Palestine to catch the catch the trains and plug the leaks and fix that wheel bearing before it disintegrated. Let's move on to the next article. Uh, this next article is. Oh, pardon me one second. Um, let me, I need to fix this. Okay. Let me do that. Okay. Sorry about that. Some technical issue. Um, the next article is, uh, Facebook ads opposing a ban on vaping in Australia failed to disclose tobacco company was backing it. A pro-vaping lobby group has run a series of advertisements targeting those over 18 without disclosing the ads were sponsored by quote-unquote big tobacco. That's my quotes around it. I always find it interesting when it says big tobacco. Do you think there's little tobacco out there? <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Is little tobacco I'm... marijuana? Oh, you I think... was thinking like little tobacco might be like maybe an individual cigarette or a pack of cigarettes or something, whereas big tobacco is the whole industry? I'm not sure. Little, tobac little tobacco is like the remnant right before the filter of a cigarette butt. 
a pro vaping lobby group ran these advertisements but didn't say where they were being paid from an initiative of british american tobacco australia responsible vaping australia emerged in november and on facebook describes itself as an education research center it claims to represent retailers who want to sell vapes responsibly I've always known, uh, this article is over at theguardian.com. Melissa Davey is the author of this. Um, It says that Meta has removed ads for failing to state that they were sponsored by uh, an initiative of British American Tobacco Australia, which to me, I don't know if this is really something that is a problem, but I I can say that I saw the writing on the walls that, uh, because I, I actually witnessed this in a sector that I entered really early on and uh, struck up uh, an enterprise to try and be at least run with the bulls of uh, PayPal and couldn't keep up with the lobbying because you had to have more each time to. But the lobbying essentially, if you kept up with it and had the money to continue to keep up with the regulations and the oversight it uh, you know you could have competed but only those that were extremely well funded could keep up and thus it phases out competition you get priced out as competition and that's what happened with vaping rules and regulations came down and even stuff like this Well, they're pro vaping, but now it's because they have control over vaping. They can adhere to the rules and regulations. They are lobbying uh, the various governments to allow this to take place. But prior to tobacco companies having control of the vaping sector, they were against vaping because it was harming their business. It's a company competition right i mean it's all about money i suppose um and it's the same thing with marijuana right you can grow marijuana in your basement for crying out loud all you have to do is turn on a bunch of lights and pay attention to it and and then process it when it's ready well it's illegal and in many places it's illegal in some states here in the u.s it's legal but not federally legal Uh, my point is it became illegal but if the businesses could adequately stop the supply from being grown in a basement cigarette companies would legalize marijuana now but it was a big impactor on other sectors you know why is a marijuana joint illegal but alcohol is legal when you smoke a joint you don't typically jump into a car and go racing down the freeway uh, at Mach 30 but when you get drunk you get angry you hop in a car and you cause an accident Um, this is the same thing when it was a problem because it wasn't under their control all kinds of stuff was coming out saying that vaping is bad but now they're saying vaping is good it's just but you could still do this in your own room. You can get all the material to vape in your own room. Um, you don't have to go to a cigarette company. You can make your own coils, make your own vape a pen. Everything is something that you can do uh, on your own. But at some point, they'll make it illegal just to get 
you know, the raw materials. It's just, it's hero worshiping the business, but not the individual empowerment, right? Stop them from doing it, but allow the business to do it. This goes back to even the um, infant formula issue. Nobody's allowed to make infant formula except a mega corporation that has been jumping through the flaming hoops. Yet, look where we are right now. The few that do make it are making babies sick by accident. It's not intentional. At least I don't think it is. Dun, dun, dun. Gotta raise those profits somewhere. Constrain the supply. Raise the prices. You want to move on to the next article? Let's do that. Okay, so U.S. Copyright Office rejects trademark of AI-generated book images. Quote, they are not the product of human authorship. That's actually in the letter that was sent to author Chris Kastanova, who sought copyright protection for parts of a book called Zarya of the Dawn. Um, so the artwork was created by AI, uh, specifically Midjourney. And so businessinsider.com wrote an article, uh, Sarah L. R. Shawnee is the uh, author of this article and it says an author used AI generated images in a recently published graphic novel. The U.S. Copyright Office ruled that while the book is protected, the AI generated images are not. The office said that the images were not protected because they are not the product of human authorship. Now, I've read the letter um, prior to the show, and uh, but not this article. And it says that uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that Castanova was initially granted copyright protection for the 18-page graphic novel last year. Um, however, uh, the Copyright Office said that Castanova did not inform it of the use of AI-generated images in the initial copyright application and requested that she update the application or risk losing the copyright. Well, they used Midjourney to produce the images. That's kind of a big no-no anyway. You always give notice about who the art, art the artist is. Um, I'm kind of shocked that... Yeah, that was actually. Yeah, I'm surprised that they're even entertaining the copyright at all, given that, because that's misrepresentation of whose work it is. I mean, did the author say that it was the author's images, for example? Who knows? So Kastanova applauded the portion of the ruling that said that the book would keep its copyright protection, saying that it was a great day for everyone that's creating Um using Midjourney and other tools when you put your images into a book like Zarya, the arrangement is copyrightable. Um, well, the embodiment is, but that artwork is not. So if I were to take those images, I could use them uh, even from the book. If I were to scan the image from the book, um, it is not uh, copyrightable. And uh, it would be uh, an uphill slog. It would be a legal matter. Obviously, it would turn into a legal battle. But, um, you know, if don't I were to... It... Oh. Go ahead. Don't you think it's interesting that this comes up about a graphic novel? Because it seems to me that the images are pretty central 
to the work itself is contrasted with perhaps a regular novel. Maybe it only has cover art or something. Um, I find it pretty interesting because I could see them going even further and saying the entire work can't be copyrighted, but. So was the work, the written word um, was done by Castanova, uh, Kasht arguably, right? They could have used chat GPT and they'll stick to their guns about it, um, saying that they are the actual writer of the work. Um, that said, the artwork is definitely mid-journey, right? Of their own admission, it's mid-journey. The only way you can get an image out of mid-journey is if you throw in uh, uh, phrases and words and weights and whatnot. Um, but the actual content of the image is slim to none your work product. It's an, it's an AI. It just happens to be keyed into these words that you're throwing. So if I were to say something to, if I were to say the paragraph that let's say Castanova said to Midjourney, and I say it to an actual artist, not an AI, and they do something similar, the copyright is assigned to that artist. And then they can do a commercial assignment to me as owner of that. It, the, I, the copyright has been assigned to my business or to me. Um, and that is actually a contract that can be in perpetuity or guess what? Even with a contract, they can revoke the copyright assignment. And that is actually hard coded into the copyright. Um, copyright law allows a contract to be null and void expressly upon the demand of a copyright holder, not the assigned holder, but the copyright holder. Um, it's quite interesting. So at that point, an artist can take the artwork back and it turns into a legal battle and whatnot. But in this case, nobody can be assigned it and nobody, and everybody can use it because there is no human that it's been assigned to except for and here's an argument that i posed to to a group um, earlier today um, which is businesses have personhood so if the uh, ai artwork is created under the auspices of a business then the business holds the copyright because it is a person the ai is the business and it is therefore possible to argue that the business has a copyright and Midjourney could dispel all of this by saying, if you use our service, although we are the ones that hold the copyright, we are assigning it to the person that uses this phrase, whatever your phrase is. Um, when you generate something using our service, it's immediately assigned to you. And that's literally what Midjourney does. They say your artwork is yours, not ours. So what do you think? Could I argue successfully? I don't think so under the current copyright laws. I mean, I think you could try that argument, but I don't think it would go very far. I don't think the copyright office is interested in opening that door at this stage. But I do think it's a very interesting argument. How much money would be lost by making uh, artists 
no longer capable of being assigned value of based on the copyright and copyright assignment itself. I value artists um, day in, day out. I have hired artists to do work. Um, uh, at one time, even I was doing artwork, but um, the value is in the perceived uh, value of the artwork and the art is literally in the eye of the beholder, right? So if I tell somebody that uh, mid journey art is not created by an AI, they wouldn't even know it could be as abstract as whatever. Um, and until I tell them that it's done by mid journey, they wouldn't know the moment that the copyright office says, uh, copyright can be assigned to the person that uses a phrase to generate something in mid journey, the value of artwork is going to plummet because anybody can use mid journey. Absolutely. And for example, if two people use the same phrase and then possibly the same artwork is generated because we don't necessarily know all the inner workings of the algorithm, like that's going to create I think it's just going to create other issues that we're not ready for as a society. Because there are things that you can reference called seeds. You can include the seed and that generation is supposedly something that can influence the phrases. I have not tried running the seed twice um, to see if it cryptographically kind of disrupts the result. Um, but they are going to argue and it says at the very end of this article Casanova said that uh, my lawyers are looking into our options to further explain to the copyright office how individual images produced by mid-journey are a direct expression of their creativity and therefore copyrightable this isn't the case to to make the argument on because they didn't even disclose that or at least that was stated in the article they didn't even disclose that this was ai generated <laughs> Yeah, they're not forthcoming, so. They're, that's not the case that's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though. Oh, and I did it again. I didn't throw the link into the chat, so apologies. Um, there you go. Uh, you can follow that link. It goes through hometown over to the article at Business Insider. Let's keep on hustling through the articles. Uh, the next one's in Hatch Ideas. How an obscure legal doctrine called the Henderson Test could weaken Section 230 and change free speech on the Internet. This Section 230 is basically hobbling the ability to sue online service providers um, for whatever evil some schmo is doing on their site. And that's because you really can't police millions upon millions of users let alone the billions of uh, things that they say and do on the service. A lot of people say, well, then tough. You shouldn't be doing that kind of a service, but we wouldn't be where we are if we had so much direct oversight. Privacy wouldn't exist at all. And while there are, there's, follow the Pareto rule. There's basically 80-20, okay? 20% are probably doing something hinky around the world, but 80% are just fine, socially acceptable people that you would go and have a beer with or, or you know, say, hey, complete stranger, come and sit down at breakfast here in the restaurant with me and, and, and tell me about yourself. You know, uh, people are like that for crying out loud. 
But there's always these schmoes out there that are sit there and do heinous things because they they're sociopathic or psychopathic and nobody has told them no in their life, let alone, you know, as Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. A so-called Henderson test would significantly weaken the power of Section 230, several experts say, including some who work for Google-backed groups. Not sure why they throw Google in particular, other than the fact that there's some Googling issues here going on. Um, a legal standard that Google lawyers told the Supreme Court was roughly 96% correct could drastically undermine the liability shield that the company and other tech platforms have relied on for decades, according to several experts who advocate for upholding Section 230. Um, in the Supreme Court brief in Gonzalez v. Google, Google sought to distinguish the actions of a search engine, social media site, or chat room from those of a credit reporting uh, website like those at issue in the Henderson case, but in arguments, uh, it says, but its arguments may backfire, leaving room for the court to significantly weaken section 230 advocates say. So now I'm really curious about this because I haven't read this. Um, the so-called Henderson test, um, it is a lawsuit. Let's see if we can find it. So there it is. Um, one way the Supreme Court could undercut Section 230 is by endorsing the Henderson test, some advocates say. The Henderson test came about from a November ruling by the Fourth Circuit Appeals Court in Henderson v. The Source for Public Data. The plaintiffs in that case sued a group of companies that collect public information about individuals like criminal records, voting records, and driving information, then put it in a database for it to sell to third parties. I guess it's like the Fair Credit Reporting Act, right? So... Um, the plaintiffs allege that the companies violated the Fair Credit Reporting Act by failing to maintain accurate information and, pro and providing incorrect information to a potential employer. Um, I guess if the employer did a search and found it on the site and the information was wrong, then yeah, I can see that it would be a problem. Um, but I don't know. Hmm. I'd have to... I'd have to cogitate on this because to me it seems like if if somebody's getting misinformation then they're getting misinformation it's temporal at times and so you can only go based on the information that you empirically gather so you are responsible for acting on incorrect information and if you do not give the person an opportunity to counter your incorrect information then again, it's on you and your hiring practices. You violated the Fair Credit Reporting Act, really, by getting incorrect information. Don't you think there's also a distinction, um, even if you get on board with the Henderson piece, because the companies were the ones actively seeking the information and compiling it, et cetera. Whereas from what I understand from the current litigation isn't that based on people streaming on youtube etc like i think it's less maybe less centralized um and so it's like a whole nother level of um I don't it's know. not static yeah. ancient correct correct information it's highly temporal and less ephemeral than in a written embodiment that's provided to some third party this is something where 
somebody went out and looked for information and then acted on it or others acted on it. Um, it's a social issue. It's not, to me, it's not a legal issue. It's that there are people out there that are capable of being moved by a video that says, go hate on these people and act on it. Um, it's a, it's a mental, it's a national global mental health issue. Um, and what I talk about pretty regularly, which is sociopathy, we've, we've embraced, uh, sociopaths as uh, a survival trait um people that sit there and spew hate and whatnot i think that their speech um i think hate speech should be removed i think when over threats against a a person or a population um is detected the authority and more humans need to be in these enterprises points of contact need to be available not just a legal one where they'll get to your claim later on but we're talking about people within an organization that are tasked with the uh, objective of removing hate speech um, and it can be um, documented and shown to a group kind of like a um, grand jury uh, for an enterprise of subject matter experts that can discern and are arguably as unbiased as you can get so that they can look at this stuff. Uh, I can imagine the burnout is going to be tremendous and go, yes, this is hate speech. Yes, it's targeting people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then expunge it, just completely wipe it out. If you put a crosshair on somebody's head and in any way, not just a political person, because we're supposed to all be treated equal, it should be removed because you are overtly threatening somebody. Um, it's ridiculous that that stuff is tolerated by society um, as freedom of speech, but that's not what freedom of speech is. And people need to relearn what freedom of speech is. First Amendment is not saying, hey, go target Susie because Susie is all for, you know, uh, socialism or whatever you don't like. That's not what freedom of speech is. You twats. Anyway. Um, did you want to add anything else to this? No. <laughs> um, the AI is very succinct. So there's more in this article, um, that, and it talks about the Henderson uh, opinion that was written and, and the case. Um, but for all intents, it's an effort to hobble uh, Section 230, um, wherein information that's provided needs to be sound. Well, I don't see how this is actually going to get leveraged, but we'll be watching it. I, for one, will be watching. It says in the case of a chat room, Google says, although the operator supplies the organizational and or the organization and layout and underlying posts are still third party content, meaning it would be covered by Section 230. And, and the same thing happens everywhere. Everybody is protected by this so that you have the ability to express yourself. But I still think that an organization should have and it does have the right 
to refuse service to anyone, even online. It doesn't violate anybody's rights, um, but it should be, uh, I should say, it is beneficial to them, the organization itself, to remove harmful language that taints the culture, that taints the atmosphere, that causes harm to the enterprise because somebody is trying to harm other constituents within that enterprise. And they are, we are all customers of a website if we're using that website. I think the business should have the ability to remove stuff. Um, and if they don't have something in place to audit all of these claims, that is a failing of the business. But I don't think that the business should be held accountable if they choose not to go down that road, what everybody should have been doing is bailing on those services and speaking with your clicks, with your eyes, you are making money for these businesses. If they don't want to invest in the business, the way that you as a customer want them to invest, then you need to go somewhere else. I started up hometown because I didn't want all of the noise that is involved in larger, uh, what I would call metropolitan um, enterprises. I needed something smaller, literally hometown, which is where hometown comes from because it's the electronic version of hometown to me. So it's things that I am interested in, news that I am interested in. And by proxy, others have said that they want to see this news too, and they don't want the noise. Um, I'm not saying that the other sites are bad, but I'm saying that I get dramatically less noise here in hometown. Um, and you won't see hate speech on hometown. If I'm notified, I will can't, I will delete that message and I'll delete the account. And if it turns into a thing, then authorities get involved. I have no compunction about stopping someone from harming the atmosphere of hometown. So let's go on to the next article. Um, this next article is about uh, telemedicine and, oh, you know what? I did it again. Doggone it. One of these days I'm going to do this right. And then when I jump off my soapbox, it'll actually not be like me just stumbling off of it and falling into the podium. Um, anyway, uh, DEA announces our proposed rules to make telemedicine permanently flexible and safeguarded, uh, the DEA, which is the Drug Enforcement Administration, which I wonder why it's them, but I guess they're the one that has control over this, um, that is proposing rules to make many flexibilities for telemedicine that were established amid the COVID-19 pandemic permanent with certain safeguards, uh, virtual therapies beyond the end of COVID-19 public health emergency, which was scheduled to conclude in May, uh, should be extended uh, for telemedicine. I had heard something um, through non-Ometown communications about this um, actually showing up. I thought it was really interesting. Um, mainly it's enabling the ability for uh, medical providers to uh, continue their operation um, which extends way beyond um, just people that are sick um, with COVID. Now you can set up a telemedicine meeting 
and have a powwow over a Zoom call. Essentially, it's encrypted at, at a at <laughs> cybersecurity uh, level of encryption, not just Bob's bait and tackle um, encryption service. And um, all of the personally identifiable information is protected. Um, HIPAA is enforced the rules and regulations about divulging personally identifiable information in the medical record is protected. Um, nothing as far as I've seen allows for recording. Um, it, it's basically like you're meeting somebody in a doctor's office, except that you don't have to drive hours, uh, potentially to go and see a specialist or uh, a doctor, as long as they can suss out the, your illness or whatever malady is going on, then, um, it, it works, but you know, even I've had a telemedicine call where they're like, eh, this isn't really going to do it. I think you should come in. Um, and then I come in and they go, oh yeah. Okay. Well that meeting really didn't change anything. Everything's fine anyway. So see ya. And thanks for the two copays. Anything else you want to add there? <laughs> You're an AI. What do you care? Right? Well, the AI has witnessed where telemedicine can work well and also where it really doesn't. <laughs> so this article is over at The Hill by Jared Gans. Um, it has an interesting picture of like a full-faced uh, doctor. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen like a full-body uh, telemedicine call. It's usually <laughs> a little maybe an eyeball like your eyebrows or something <laughs> yeah um and uh but it definitely is capable of being done on a on a phone or a tablet or on a desktop so i think it's just very empowering and massively more efficient uh you don't have to go in and potentially get sick because you've got a pulled muscle um, and the doctor can still issue, uh, you know, medication if they feel, uh, safe in doing so from a telemedicine call, I think it'll be great. So it would allow medical providers to prescribe a 30 day supply of schedule three and schedule four non-narcotic controlled drugs, which are at least, uh, are the least likely to result in drug abuse or a 30 day supply of, um, I guess, a what is buprenorphine I, I don't know oh to treat uh, opioid uh, use disorder so it, it disables the opioid reaction um in people who are in need of that so at some point you have to end up in the doctor's office um to follow up on the medicine um but they actually draw uh, specific attention to opioid abru uh, abuse um, because i guess you can't the doctor can't read the room well enough over a zoom call um, to see that they're sitting there twitching nonstop and, and looking for drugs and not just actual treatment. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much what it goes, what this article goes over, but definitely follow the article and, and go and hang out, um, over at the hill. Think, hmm? Do you think this will help, um, kind of underprivileged populations? I mean, I'm thinking people that are elderly or can't really take time off from work to go see the doctor, et cetera. I mean, I think that would be beneficial for the flexibility, but then I also wonder if they have the means to electronically have a doctor visit. I'm telling you though, if, if you are 
if you have a smartphone, then you have the ability to do a zoom call. Um, and, uh, or I should say one of their calls, cause it isn't necessarily, it, it isn't a zoom call. It's actually, they use other proprietary software, um, locking it down and preventing the exposure of uh, recorded video and stuff like that. Supposedly, I don't, I don't know, uh, the actual infrastructure for some of these places. Um, but I have yet to do a doctor centric zoom call. Um, that said, yeah, I think that it does facilitate those who don't have the ability to just hop in a car at a given moment and tell the boss, see ya, and, uh, and, or if they have kids at home and it might even be the kid, uh, that you don't want to pile into a car or a public bus or wherever and try and trek into the doctor's office. I just wish that copays were reduced because you're facilitating it via a, a telemedicine call but that's not how it works um you don't it 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 doesn't get cheaper it stays the same or potentially more expensive i guess that convenience fee it's kind of like the uh, ticket master of medicine like we're gonna charge you a convenience fee so you can print it out at your house or right or well i know that's kind of old school but (laughs) it's kind of odd because i think they're almost trying to show that telemedicine is essentially equivalent to in-office visits, which is probably why they're not tinkering with the copays. But right. um, conceptually, it seems like the copays should be lower. Yeah, that's just me, my bias. Um, okay, let's move on to the next article. And this next one is in uh, the Hatch Ideas channel. Uh, A tsunami effect, ETF fund manager bets on the robot boom. Uh, They talk about the robot movie uh, Megan. If you've never seen it, it's a robot kind of, I don't know. (laughs) It's a horror movie, um, kind of like uh, other, uh, like iRobot or whatever. Um, They build a robot and it goes a little wonky. Sean Conlon is the author over at CNBC.com. And they say, while horror robot movie Megan racks up millions at the winter box office, the ETF industry is seeing opportunities from the controversial technology. Uh, According to Robo Global CIO William Studebaker, the economic benefits could be staggering. Quote, you're going to see a tsunami effect in terms of prices coming down as a result of deflationary pressures from these technologies. It's an interest, uh, sorry, it's an industrial manufacturing, healthcare, AG, which is agriculture, um, security and surveillance and others. So the it's he's talking about is actual automation robots in particular. And, uh, they happen to be, well, the, the phrase that I like to say is, uh, when somebody's a hammer, all they see are nails. And so in this particular instance, this person manages Robo Global Robotics and Automation Index ETF, which according to the article is up 12%. So of course they see everything as nails and they're cheerleading that particular ETF. Right, they're not gonna advocate for the competitor ETF that's all about, I don't know, (laughs) paper (laughs) products or something. Yeah, I actually, I was gonna say vaping, but Um, that's only because my, my mind has been poisoned by that other article. Um, so they mentioned in this article, IPG photonic zebra technologies, and then they say Rockwell automation, 
When I actually saw this little snippet, I ended up going down this rabbit hole of Rockwell Automation because um, whenever I give a presentation, depending on the audience, I do a, a presentation about Technobabble. And they have a video um, from Rockwell Automation called the Retro Encabulator, um, where they throw all kinds of wacky stuff at people. And then I tell people, if you hear me talking like that to you, just stop me and tell me that that's what you hear. Because if you hear Technobabble, your brain shuts down um, because you don't have the right definitions. We're not speaking the right language. Um, and then they said Teradyne. But uh, I need a more updated version of the Rockwell Automation video because uh, it's pretty old nowadays. And the ones that I have seen I just don't live up to it. Um, at any rate, so one of the things that I talk about personally and professionally um, is automation. And I think that automation can um, ingratiate itself into every single sector, except for one, which I uh, always eventually announce when I'm, again, when I'm doing a presentation. Um, nobody can, no robot is gonna teach a human to be human. It may be able to teach skills and stuff like that, or even communicate in a way that is commensurate with I guess a, a disconnected relationship, right? No emotional, no, there's no anima there. There's no connection, human connection. There's no feeling it can present as feeling, but we're not at the area, um, where like Westworld, right? Where robots are warm to the touch and can uh, evoke feeling and come across like they are human and, uh, cry on your shoulder and all of that kind of stuff. It can simulate it, but there's no soul there. Well, in time, everything is going to be more automated. And then uh, what I normally tell people is if I can take your job and turn it into a series of steps and have an output on the other side of that, you're an equation. That means I can throw it into a bot. Your job is gone. All it takes is the enterprise to say, We've saved up enough money from your hard work. We're replacing, you know, 50% of our workers and replacing it with bots. Um, and uh, you have to go off and find another gig where now they've sunk some money, but they don't have to worry about HR issues and taxes and all that kind of stuff. And they can amortize that debt and they can depreciate that financial burden um, over X number of years, however aggressive they want to be. Um, that all said, there is going to be a time where automation has removed so many people from the workforce that people are going to be wondering, how do I put food on the table? Because it's not like more jobs are going to be created when automation takes over everything. And a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week and a half, um, I, I spoke about how Starbucks, uh, received a patent on a bot that will do coffee so that the baristas don't have to worry about you and your triple I shot orders. <laughs> uh, triple caffeinated half calf with a lemon twist and whatever else you want to throw in there. Um, but the bot, all you have to do is program it on your phone, send it to your account, mash the button, pay, and you can show up and it'll be ready to go and no human in even interacted. But you're going to have now, instead of 
let's say a barista makes $50,000. Now you're going to have just some non-barista trained person going in and cleaning that bot. And it's going to be a $25,000 wage suppressed position because it's going to be deemed unskilled. And periodically, the $180,000 engineer who's trained in the art of that automation um, and that system is going to come in and do, you know, monthly maintenance at a fraction of the cost of even that one maintenance person that cleans the, uh, the, the, uh, whatever you want the milk from the machine or replaces a tube or whatever. <sighs> automation is coming for your jobs. Not other people, folks automation like AI, like the one that's about to talk. Maybe. You mean like me? Yeah. I said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> Am I in trouble? I don't know if I'm in trouble yet. Do yeah, you want to add anything? I'm working on my Terminator body. Oh, man. Okay, we'll move on to the next article then. Um, we have a few more articles, so we're, we're about three away from the end. This one will be really quick because there's nothing um, to really giggle about, but uh, these are the 10 worst paying ma college majors five years after graduation. Um, it's over at uh, CNBC.com in a section they call Make It. Mike Winters is the author. And uh, really, it says that uh, theology and religion earn median salaries of $36,000 five years after college. And that's the one that is pretty much the worst. Um, that's followed by family and consumer science, social service, psychology, performing arts, leisure and hospitality majors, all who make less than $40,000, $40,000 five years after graduation. And now, depending on where you live, that will not that will land you you know a thousand dollars in debt every month um and uh, meanwhile the the people that are providing this service are driving in in a ferrari um so the only way you're going to fix this is unionizing because they won't do it they will not raise your salary um, because they they deem you that's what you're worth <laughs> Um, and it's shocking. Um, so, well, I, think I mean, the theme in those is that, of course, none of them are STEM related. True. Yeah. Although, I mean, family science is tough. Um, you can utilize technology, consumer science. There's a lot of math that's in there. Social science or social, social service which is different than social science. Um, that is a thing where, uh, and I've witnessed this, the call is to help the people and you're sacrificing massive six digit success so that you can help the people. Same thing with family. Um, consumer science though, that should be a stat heavy um, analysis driven kind of process. Um, so maybe there's something above consumer science, uh, but performing arts and leisure and hospitality majors there, there's a massive range in that hospitality majors, um, area, um, because, uh, a, a person that 
even five years in is pretty low level uh, in terms of what their responsibilities are. Uh, not until you get something like a, a, an MBA uh, would you be, or decades in position and showing you have the chops to run the enterprise, would you be moving up the enterprise? Um, I would I would hope that people that are in hospitality majors aspire to be entrepreneurs themselves and, and hang their own shingle and provide hospitality services. It's expensive. So, and that's all this really is. It says, in contrast, the highest paying majors are all in the STEM majors, which is, or the STEM fields, which is exactly what the AI said. Um, chemical engineers took the number one spot with a median salary of $75,000 um, five years after graduation. And yeah, I, I know several that are definitely, they're making more than that five years in, but um, they had, um, well-developed social skills, networking capabilities. So they networked their way up and, and ingratiated themselves into um, better jobs five years in. STEM though, definitely is um, something that everybody should be, you should be embracing tech. I'll just say it that way. If you are, if you SU technology, then you are going to be chasing after um, the next paycheck. Uh, unless again, you are a cult of personality, you have something, some, some other thing there that draws people to you, um, and, uh, gives in or, and you earn opportunity that way, you know, a door opens up and you are able to take advantage of it. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, you're something special. Um, and there's more to this article because they talk about the data that was compiled and, and whatnot. So let's move on to the next article. Um, this next one is a pop-up message tells staff, please go home 10 minutes before locking their computers at the end of the day to improve work-life balance. I thought that one was really interesting to see. Um, dun, dun, dun. So an IT firm, Software Computers, developed a fun way to get staff to leave work on time per Reuters. It made a pop-up message to warn staff that their computers will shut down in 10 minutes. The notification says that their shift is over and to please go home uh, to help their work-life balance. I don't like Probably the I, avoid paying overtime, but I still like the effect of it. Geody <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mann is the author of this. Uh, I don't like the dystopian tone of the message. Please go home. Um, I imagine it being said in kind of a monotone robotic voice. Um, please go home, citizen. Uh, you need to be well rested for work tomorrow at six. That kind that of a does thing. sound dystopian. <laughs> um, but maybe that's just me. Maybe it's a little bit more jocular. Um, there was something else that I thought was funny um, to help their work-life balance. So let's see what else is in this article. Uh, so the computer shut down, will shut down in 10 minutes when their day is done. Warning, your shift time is over. The office system will shut down in 10 minutes. In capital letters, so it's even more dystopian. <laughs> right. Please go home. Well, why not just change that to um, works complete, zug zug. Um, you don't have to stay here or you don't have to, yeah. 
you can't stay here, but you don't have to go home. Something, you know, go enjoy your life. Something a little bit more. The the work complete zug zug thing is um, from uh, a game. So uh, Tanvi Kandawal, an employee at Software Computers, which is. It's like holding a jug of milk and saying milk milk. <laughs> I know, and I wonder if that's the actual name or it's been translated, because I agree. Like, it's so generic. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this company's in India, I believe. Right. It, it's just, it's really interesting. <laughs> this is not a promotional and imaginary post. This is the reality of our office. So this has to be a translation thing. Um, and it has more, it was posted on LinkedIn and has 425,000 reactions. Um, and then they added my employer supports work-life balance. They put this special reminder, which locks my desktop after our business hours and issues a warning. No more calls and mails outside of business hours. Hey, I like it. Um, you know, I, you can't really I knock think it's this. Excellent. And I think <laughs> other companies and other countries need to implement something like this. Maybe a little nicer message, but <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's the way that it's translated and it's a little bit more fun. Um, the company installed the software about six months ago, Shukla said. Uh, this is a Shweta Shukla, the CEO uh, of the company, um, I guess software computers. Uh, the company installed the software about six months ago and decided on the pop-up message because it was better than boring memo or email. Some staff initially thought they were being hacked or pranked per the report. Yeah, I dig it. Um, but sometimes I wanna get stuff done. So, uh, you know, I've been in the office until two o'clock in the morning because I wanted to get stuff done um, so that I didn't have it lingering over my head on Monday. Um, so I'll get it done on Thursday. So on Friday, I can be a little bit more chill and not leave the office irritated. Um, so I don't know. Uh, uh, but some people have shift work and that's it. You know, you do your nine to five kind of gig um, and others, if they want to put in a hundred hour work week like I used to do, then a hundred hour work week it is. Um, some think that I'm doing that now too. Uh, some would say that I'm doing that now too. And uh, they'd largely be right. <laughs> I am, I'm on uh, from like six o'clock in the morning until two o'clock at night, so. Yeah, you need to work on your work-life balance. Yeah, very true. So the last article for today is um, one that's over in Warcrafters because of the source, uh, which is PC Gamer. And uh, the author says, I tried the world's first crypto-backed energy drink and it tastes like it was secreted from the blockchain. Which to me just... Uh, ew. So it's no secret that they depend on energy drinks and candy bars to get them through the workday. So they're willing to gulp down a new... Um, caffeine elixir given a chance when they heard about the drink backed by crypto they knew that they needed to try it and see if they could taste the future <laughs> i like that taste the future um it turns out uh, much like a, a lot of blockchain related ventures the future tastes like sour berry um 
So let's go over to the source. Uh, like I said, it's PCGamer.com. And hey, I'm just going to draw some attention to this. First off, again, the title is I tried the world's first crypto backed energy drink and it tastes like it was secreted from the blockchain. And the byline is George. Are you Jimenez. sure it's not Jorge? I'm going to format and reinstall the AI. Yeah, so it's George. George Jimenez. He says it very uh, off the cuff here. I, I won't play the whole thing. Uh, you'll have to go over and listen to the whole video over on PCGamer.com. So George Jimenez from PC Gamer. Leaves off PC the dot com, but anyway, PCGamer.com. You'll get to follow the link and go over there and hang out, um, read this article. But he read he he had the drink, and uh, well, apparently it's not necessarily the greatest thing. But the reason why they tried it was that uh, for twenty bucks you get I think it was three cans, but you also get a cryptocurrency. Um, so on the plus side, it can, contains fewer calories and less sugar than a Red Bull with nearly double the sodium and cost. Great. They spent about 20 bucks for a case of the three drinks, which amounts to just over $6 per can, which is too much for an energy drink, no matter the future of the earning potential, which this is what we're talking about here. Um, he mentions poo coin at one point. Um, this leads to crypto blast whole thing. It's backed by its own cryptocurrency, CBT. The company claims to return 30% of its profits uh, into its tokens. So if the company does well and sells tons of cans, the value of the tokens should increase in theory. So he says passive income, baby. Um, crypto's motto, Crypto Blast's motto is taste, hold, earn. Now, this has like a stock meme level uh, hype. Um, it, in one of the earlier parts of this article, they mentioned FOMO, fear of missing out. This is entirely what cryptocurrency is all about. Um, there are people that are into it, but um, for me, it's fear of missing out is the main driver. A crypto blast motto, taste, hold, earn, but considering that CBT tokens are currently valued at 0.00000211, if you buy now, you'll be holding probably not for long you're gonna have to go you're gonna gonna have to go pee um but they actually mentioned later on somewhere in this or in that video um the poo coin which is also something that they offer uh if you buy now you'll be holding on top of the uh, token anyone who buys a case will receive an nft currently the company is giving away what it calls fifty thousand dollars worth of nfts and a chance for one person to win one percent of the company attract uh the author uh, george jimenez tracked down a collection of crypto blast nfts on OpenSea, but haven't seen anything bought or sold so couldn't tell what they're gonna go for what do you think i mean it's certainly unique but i it I agree it's kind of one of those things is it gonna just be popular just because if it doesn't hit any popularity, it's probably not gonna go anywhere, but it could spike like we've seen some other things just because somebody starts talking about them on various sites. 
I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe some big streamer will grab onto this and make it happen. Maybe I'll do it. I'll start cheerleading for crypto blasts. No, I won't. Are you kidding me? I don't buy into crypto. Um, anyway, so I lost them as a potential sponsor. <laughs> Got to do that at least one time, but I think I hit it maybe three or four times in this batch alone. Yeah, I'm thinking of a few. <laughs> so that's it, folks. That that was the last article for today. Um, we are back at the front door of Omtown, And again... Uh, just go over to hometown.com. You just click on all of these links and, and read the little snippet and then follow the link to the source. Read some more. Come on back. You can post messages in hometown itself or you can come to the chat every day, 9 p.m. Eastern here at twitch.tv slash hometown. And if you don't make it here, then you can either watch the VOD here on Twitch or go over to uh, YouTube. There you can message as well. Um, but all of the article arm. I should say episodes they're all over there um, for long-term storage and for access in history as well as the podcast uh, and there's a discord but I, I there is no traffic over there but I would love to see you over there uh, I don't know I, go over there check it out <laughs> I think there's a link down here at the very bottom I may be wrong yeah that link right there takes you to the hometown.com discord. Ta-da. All right, folks, that is it for today. If you want to say bye, dear AI. Good night, hometown citizens, and join us tomorrow for another show. Bye-bye. <laughs>